This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. I think indeed that the book of Job is included in the canon by God, inspired by God, and included in the canon of the Scriptures simply because the entire book deals with what is sometimes called the problem of suffering. From a certain point of view, the book of Job is, I think, a somewhat difficult book to understand. I can remember when I was a child in our family and in the family devotions, it came time to read the book of Job. I always looked at that with a certain amount of distaste. While I enjoyed chapters 1 and 2, which were historical, and the final chapter in which all of Job's riches were restored, I had no idea what these interminably long speeches were all about, which constituted the majority of the book. I had a certain sense of the fact that there were bitter and sharp disagreements between Job and his three friends, all right. And I could even sense a certain tension between the two. But what the teaching of Job was all about, I hadn't the faintest idea. Nevertheless, in the course of time, after reading the book again and again, In many respects, it has become a favorite of mine. It has so much to do with this matter of suffering that it's almost a necessity for every child of God to read. It's quite obvious, I think, that there is no time tonight to deal with the book in detail. So I'm going to try in as quickly a time as I can to draw the main lines in the book. And the result of that's going to be that we're going to have to overlook a number of important passages. You all know the history of Job, and I think there is little point in our reviewing that tonight. It doesn't take very lengthy study of the book of Job to realize that Job was called to suffer far, far beyond what most people are called to suffer in the course of their life. Not only was his suffering involved in the fact, of course, that God took from Job all his possessions so that he was reduced to abject poverty. Not only was it true that his entire family was wiped out with the exception of a rather nasty wife to whom he was married, or at least one made nasty by her husband's sufferings, but his suffering consisted too of some sort of disease of the skin, perhaps boils or something like that, which while they did not constitute a threat to his life, 
were unbearably painful. And Job himself expressed more than once the wish that he would die rather than have to suffer the excruciating pain of these boils or whatever they were which God through Satan sent upon him. But even that was not yet the worst of his sufferings. His friends, his closest friends, his most intimate friends, his fellow believers in the household of faith turned against him and with almost heartlessly cruel words upbraided him repeatedly with false accusations. The accusations which they leveled at Job were almost as bad as the ones which Satan brought against Job to God when the sons of God came together in heaven. That was almost more than Job could bear. There is a plaintive cry of Job that's found in Job 19 in which he expresses his utter loneliness. He had no comforters. It was not only that no one had anything to say which would bring a measure of peace to his troubled soul, but all his acquaintances and all those who lived in the city of Ur with him did nothing else but scorn him and ostracize him and make his place in the society of the city in which he lived almost impossible. But even that was not Job's main suffering, as serious as it was. The main suffering was that all of these sufferings which he was called to endure were sent to him by God. That troubled Job more than anything else. In a striking passage, he even claims, and rightly so, that God persecuted him. He compares his sufferings and the travail of his soul with persecution at the hand of God, which troubled him beyond measure. The big problem in the book of Job was, of course, the simple question which you and I so frequently ask as well, why? Why was Job called to endure all these sufferings? It certainly was not, as the devil claimed, that sufferings were necessary because they would break, bring out Job's true character. Job, after all, Satan said, was a hypocrite of the basest sort. He only served God because it paid. Satan's claim was that Job was an adherent to the so-called prosperity gospel, 
Show an outward belief in God and you will be rich. That was the devil's charge. That was the devil's explanation. He had to suffer. It was wise that he suffered because that would expose Job's corrupt and wicked and covetous heart. But God himself passed a different sentence on Job at the very beginning of the book and said himself to Satan that Job was good beyond any of his contemporaries. That is a powerful statement. Job is better in his life, more holy than anyone in the whole vicinity in which Job lived because he fears God, he hates and flees from evil, and in all his life walks in obedience to God. That was God's own sentence. Satan heard it, Satan contradicted God and said, it's not so. Apparently God said, Satan, you can't see Job's heart. But if you send him sufferings, then his true evil heart will be, would be exposed. The friends had another explanation for Job's sufferings. It wasn't that Job had no one to whom he could, could turn for an explanation of these things. His friends were more than willing to explain to Job the nature, the reason, which lay behind his sufferings. I want to read some of these quotes from some of his friends. Friends in, in quotation marks. Very early on, already in Job 5, verse 1, and Job 2, verse 17, Eliphaz, in speaking of Job, says, Call now if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn? For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. I have seen the foolish taking root. That was a reference to Job, of course. The, the foolish prosper, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Eliphaz's point was, Job, you have it coming. What you are called to endure is because you are a very wicked man and God is seeking to correct you. Here's Bildad in Job 8. How long wilt thou speak these things, justifying thyself? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Bildad was not hesitant to call Job a windbag in his defense of his own righteousness. Again, Bildad. Can the flag grow without water? Whilst it is yet in his greenness and not cut down, it withereth before any other herb. So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. That sounds like Satan, doesn't it? You're a hypocrite, Job, and your hope 
perishes. Zophar, and my impression of Zophar is that he was far and away the cruelest of them all. Should not the multitude of words be answered, and should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? You want me to quit because you lie? Is that what you want me to do? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? In other words, all of Job's claims to be righteous are dismissed by Zophar as being mockery. Just put yourself once in that position where you're in the hospital and your pain is incredibly great. And all kinds of measures are taken to try to cure you without success. And somebody from your congregation comes to you in the hospital and says to you, should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? Think that would be of any comfort to you? Nevertheless, that's what they said. For thou hast said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. In other words, it's far worse even than you imagine, Job. You're more wicked even than you will admit. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. You're so wicked that even all of this suffering to which God has subjected you is not enough. It's not as much as you deserve. That was Zophar. When I read Zophar's speeches, I have to be on my guard lest my fists clench. The man invariably makes me furious. Zophar again, if thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands toward him, if iniquity be in thy hand, put it far away and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. And then Eliphaz again. Should a wise man utter vain knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? Yea, thou castest oft fear and restrainest prayer before God, for thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity. And thou choosest the tongue of the crafty, Thine own mouth condemneth thee, and not I. Yea, thine own lips testify against thee. Those were the words of those who were supposed to come to Job with comfort. Unbelievably cruel. But the point of them all was simply this. Job, you have coming what you are suffering and in fact, you have coming a whole lot more than your suffering. Because somewhere hidden deep within your heart is a terrible, terrible wickedness. And you're not going to find anything else but suffering until 
You are ready to confess your wickedness. Now, Job's response to all of this was time and time again. It isn't so, men. Don't you understand? It isn't so. Whatever reason God may have for sending these sufferings upon me, it's not because of my sin. I'm absolutely convinced of that. In fact, I will never, never under any circumstances allow myself to agree with you. There is in Job's plea of righteousness not the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. We must get that straight, and you must understand that in order to understand the book of Job. If you had put the question four square to Job, Job, are you a sinner? He would have said without hesitation, yes, of course, of course I am. But that's not the point now. You don't have to remind me of all my sins. I know them well enough. I plead righteousness. That was Job's answer. To that answer he held, no matter what the friends said. That's laid out for us, especially in that moving and profoundly important answer which Job gives to his three friends in Job 19. And I want to say just a word about that. In the context, he tells about how great his sufferings were. And he says, this is what God has done to me. God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass, and he hath set darkness in my paths, and he hath stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He hath destroyed me on every side, and I am gone, and my hope hath he removed like a tree, and so on and so on. And then he speaks of the consequences of that. He hath put my brethren far from me and mine acquaintance are verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed, his relatives. And my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in mine house and my maids count me for a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I called my servant and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. Servant pulled up his nose at Job, thumbed his nose at Job. Wouldn't pay any attention to what he said. My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body. Yea, young children despised me. I arose and they spake against me. They taunted him as he suffered the agonies of his pain and loss. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. And so on and so on. 
And then almost with unbearable pathos, he cries out, have pity upon me, have pity upon me, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? And then comes those remarkable words. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. What an amazing confession. You understand that the word Redeemer, which is translated correctly so in our King James Version as Redeemer, is the Hebrew word goel. I can put it on the board. Goel occupied an extremely important place in the nation of Israel. Although he was responsible for many, many things, as for example, Boaz was the goel of Naomi's possessions that fell to her because of the death of her father, her, her husband. A goel or redeemer was one who stood for the honor of his family. If, for example, in a given city, as happens sometimes, someone was murdered, and the blame for the murder was charged to a member of someone's family, one in the family became the redeemer, whose responsibility it was to vindicate the member of his family who was falsely charged and to vindicate the man who was falsely charged from his family by uncovering the one who was responsible for the crime. That was the idea, among others, of a redeemer. Job pleads that his redeemer lives. And it's an obvious reference, as even Handel knew when he wrote the words of the Messiah to Christ. Job was looking to Christ, and Job is saying to his three friends, Christ will vindicate me. I'm not pleading that I am sinless. I'm not laying a claim to be perfect in this life, but I am saying that my present suffering is not because of a particular sin which I am keeping hidden in my heart. And Christ will vindicate me someday over against all of you who falsely accuse me. I appeal to Christ. And notice that he speaks of his Redeemer as living, which means, of course, very obviously, that he saw that his Redeemer was one who died for him. Otherwise, why make it a point that his Redeemer lives? He's going to die. That's why I'm righteous in him. But he lives. He lives. And there's going to be a day 
at the end of time, when he will stand here upon the earth where you men are accusing me, and he will vindicate my cause, because though I go to the grave, and though my body is destroyed, in my flesh I shall see God. And that will be the day of my vindication. In him I am righteous. That's a profound statement. I have read a number of commentaries on that passage in Job in which these commentaries claim that there could not possibly be any reference here to Christ because, well, because Job was a contemporary of Abraham. And at that early a date in the history of the world, it was impossible to believe in the resurrection of the body. And so Job was not talking about Christ at all. That sheer deviltry, that kind of an interpretation of the verse. The fact of the matter is that even Abraham believed in the resurrection. Hebrews 11 tells us that in so many words. By faith he offered up his son Isaac. Why? Because he believed that God could raise him from the dead. From whence also, Hebrews says, he received him, that is his son, in a figure. He saw in Isaac the resurrection of Christ. Job did too. The claim is that Job makes I am righteous in Christ. I don't know why I'm suffering. I can't explain it. I have my own struggles and problems with it. But it isn't because God is punishing me for my sin. I lay claim to Christ. That makes the sin of these three friends very great. When they charged and persisted in charging Job with transgressions of every conceivable sort, they were speaking evil of the cross. And they were trying to rob Job of his faith in the cross. I can't imagine anything worse than that. When a saint of God is in deep affliction, and suffering grievously, and the minister comes and tries to rob him of his comfort, deliberately, consciously robbing him of his comfort. That's unconscionable and a very, very great sin. It was casting despot on the cross, and it was a conscious effort to rob Job of his assurance. That leaves us with the problem of what troubled Job so deeply. His problem was simply this. He asked too frequently and too insistently, why does God do this? To me, why does God cause the righteous to suffer? Why are those who are righteous in Christ made to suffer with such terrible suffering? 
That was Job's problem. And in addition to that, that which made his suffering greater than ever before was this. He beseeched the Lord to tell him, and the Lord was silent. He prayed, he sought the Lord, he earnestly asked the Lord, Lord, just tell me why, that's all. What is the reason why I have to suffer? I hold my righteousness that I have in the cross of Christ before thee. Explain to me why. And the Lord would not. Listen to Job, chapter 23. Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. If I could find him, I would bring before him my case that I'm righteous in Christ. And I would argue that this would be sufficient to deliver me from such affliction. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, no, Job is convinced of that. But he would put strength in me. If only God would explain to me the reason why I suffer such affliction, I think I could bear it. It would help just to know, that's all. There the righteous might dispute with him, so should I be delivered forever from my judge. And then this. It's very difficult for me to read this even because it's so true to our lives so frequently. Behold, I go forward but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. I can't find him. Pray as I might, heaven is closed. The door is slammed in my face. He has abandoned me. The God in whom I trust, the righteousness of whose Son I claim is my own, will not let me into his presence. It is as if God doesn't care, as if he's forgotten about me in my agony. It's as if he says, let him suffer. We can't be bothered with his problems. That's his Job. That's the terrible part. When everything else is said and done, and when you have weighed all my suffering in the balances, this, this is the one thing to which I crave an answer.
Well, as you know, God finally did answer him. It's an answer that is unexpected. It's an answer that we don't like very well. I can remember the first time that I came to an understanding somewhat of the book of Job, that when God finally did answer him, it was almost as if I felt like saying to myself, no answer at all is better than that. But there is there a fundamental principle that underlies all of the suffering which the people of God endure, which if we are to have a proper and biblical and comforting view of suffering, we must understand. God's answer begun by Elihu, Elihu who understood far more than the three friends, but picked up by God himself, was simply this, and let it be forever imprinted on your hearts, beloved. God's answer is simply this. Who do you think you are, Job, that you can come to me and demand of me that I sit in the witness box in your courtroom and justify to you what I do. What kind of an arrogance is that on your part? Do I have to give an account of what I do to you? Do I have to explain my ways to you? That's the force of God's answer. And in order to drive that home on Job, he talks, God talks about his creation and all the mighty and powerful works that he does in the creation and how he upholds all things and how he rules according to the counsel of his own will and how he does all his good pleasure in heaven and on earth. And here sits this little speck of dust and he's got the nerve to come before the face of God and say, explain to me why you do this to me. Who do you think you are? That's the answer. That's all the answer. There is no more. But it was enough for Job. Listen to what he says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. I'll keep my mouth shut. I don't know what I have been talking about. That's the response. He learned. Or a little later, after God once more spoke of his powers in the creation. I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. 
Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. That is the attitude which the child of God must take towards suffering fundamentally as a principal starting point. If he is to understand the ways of God at all in suffering, he's got to start right there. And and now I speak from experience as well. God sometimes brings us there too. God may send some affliction upon us, and every child of God experiences that of one sort or another. And the affliction seems overwhelming, almost more than we can bear. And we ask the Lord all kinds of questions. And even with a somewhat rebellious spirit, questioning the wisdom of the Most High, we lose contentment with his way for us and begin to quarrel with him and argue. What does God do when we do that? Does he take away our affliction? No, he says, all right, that's your attitude. Then this too yet, I'll send this upon you too. And underneath it all we say, I can't bear it. It's more than I can bear. And God says, all right, then more yet. More yet, worse afflictions, more troubles, more misery in your life. Until at last, we are driven so low by the hand of God that all we can say, and I say again, every child of God has got to come to that point at some time in his life, and maybe more than once. God, you have the right to do with me whatever you will. Whatever it is, that's your right, your prerogative. I will receive it at thy hand. Not because I can't do anything else with a fatalistic attitude because thou art stronger than I, but just simply because thou art God. That was his answer to Job. I'm God. And you're a creature. And when we reach that point, in the midst of affliction and suffering, where with all our hearts we say, Lord, here I am, do with me as it seems good to you, no matter what it may be, then we have reached that point where we can begin to understand a little bit the biblical teaching of suffering. That's the lesson of Job. Now to the Psalms. 
I can remember when we were at home, my father used to say to us, when you are children and young people, then the historical books of the Bible have the most appeal to you. And when you get to be mature men and women, the doctrinal books of the Bible are particularly delightful. But when you get old, you will turn to the Psalms. And that is true. I have found that out in my own life. The Psalms, the biblical Psalter, is an amazing book. If Luther, if Luther could call the epistle of Paul to the Galatians, his Katie, to whom he was united in holy wedlock, I think I may call the Psalms asking pardon of my wife, my Wilma, to whom I am united in holy wedlock. There can be no doubt about it that to the child of God, as he nears the end of his earthly pilgrimage, that the Psalms come to mean to him more and more. There are so many things to say about the Psalms that I almost feel overwhelmed. From every point of view, the Psalms give new insights, new understanding into all kinds of areas of the Christian life. I can't possibly go into those things in the short time that we have available to us yet tonight, and I do want to finish this. There's too much to say next time to carry this over. And so there are two themes in the Psalms, two main thoughts in the Psalms to which I wish to call your attention and to develop a little bit with you tonight. The first theme of the Psalms that I want to discuss with you is the messianic character of the Psalms and what it means that the Psalms are messianic. I have a book on my shelf at home, a recently printed book by a theologian from Europe, as I recall from Norway, who flatly denies that there is anything messianic about the Psalms at all. He said that the Psalms, insofar as they refer to Israel's life, were really folk songs of one sort or another that characterized Israel's religious cultus, I think was the word he used, if I remember. But anyone who looks for Christ in the Psalms is on a wild goose chase because he isn't there. That was this man's firm conviction, which leads me to believe that he doesn't have the faintest inkling of any part of scripture or what any part of scripture really means. 
I would say not only are there messianic psalms in scripture that prophesy of Christ, but that every psalm in the Hebrew Psalter has to do with Christ and is prophetic of him. It may seem to you like a startling statement and I have pondered whether that is true for many, many years. I am increasingly convinced that if the Psalms are understood correctly, there isn't a single Psalm in the whole Hebrew Psalter that does not speak of Christ. Now I'd like to have that understood. What I mean by that is important. In the first place, as we all know, there are psalms in the scriptures which are clearly, undeniably, overtly messianic. There are psalms that speak of the suffering of Christ, Psalm 22, being an outstanding example. So much so was Psalm 22 prophetic of Christ that Psalm 22 was quoted at the cross when Christ died for our sins. And even more than that, Christ himself quoted Psalm 22. Two of Christ's crosswords are direct quotations from the Psalms. And Psalm 22 begins with that awful crossword, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When Christ uttered those words on the cross, he was consciously quoting from the Psalms. But what strikes me about it is this, that he was not just simply demonstrating that the Psalms were prophetic of his suffering, he was saying, as it were, These are my words. They always were my words. They were my words 2,000 years ago when David penned them. They naturally belong on my lips, and they belong on my lips first of all. Those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, are my words. Nobody else's but mine. They always were, and they are now. At the same time, there are psalms that speak openly and very frequently of, of Christ's ascension into heaven and his exaltation at God's right hand. That's a dominant theme in the psalms. Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. He is the King of glory. Psalm 68, where David expresses his delight when he brings the ark out of the house of Obed-Edom and has it carried to a tent on the hill of Zion. David saw in that a picture of the ascension of Jesus Christ. 
and it has been a favorite of the church when she sings of her victories in the ascended Lord. I don't know how many of you here understand Dutch. The Heer sal opstaan tot zijn strijd. Victorious, powerful over all his enemies, he ascends to the highest reaches of glory. Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, and I will make thy enemies my foot, thy footstool. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Openly, Christ in his glory. The New Testament itself points out that Psalm 2. Yet I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I have sworn the decree. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Was fulfilled in the resurrection. Paul tells the church in Antioch that. Antioch of Pisidia. Psalm 2 is fulfilled. Psalm 2 is the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter in his marvelous Pentecostal sermon speaks of the fact that God raised Christ from the dead. As David prophesied in Psalm 16, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither suffer thy Holy One to seek corruption. All direct, vivid, unmistakable prophecies of Christ. The point I want to make, however, is this. That what is outstandingly true of some of these psalms to which I have called your attention is fundamentally and basically true of all the psalms without exception. That is, when I am saying that, what I mean by that is this. That in every psalm in the Psalter of the Old Testament scriptures, Christ is speaking. Christ is speaking audibly. Christ is speaking of himself. Christ is speaking of his lowly birth, of his battle that he fought all his life long against the forces of darkness of his suffering and death on the cross, and of his triumphant victory in the resurrection and the ascension. All the Psalms speak of that. Now when I make that assertion and insist on that assertion, I do not mean that the Psalms were inspired by the Spirit of Christ. That's true too. And that makes it possible too that all the Psalter is Christ speaking. The psalmists, no matter who they were, whether they were David or Asaph or Moses in Psalm 90 or Heman in Psalm 89, they were all inspired. Even the psalm, Psalm 137, written by someone, the author of whom we do have no knowledge, at the time of the captivity was inspired. By Babel's streams we sat and wept, for memory still to Zion clung, and so on and so forth. They were inspired by the Spirit of Christ. 
Peter makes that very, very clear in his second epistle, chapter 1. You may read it for yourself. The spirit which inspired them was the spirit of Christ. Christ was speaking through the spirit. That's what makes the Psalms messianic, first of all. But that isn't exactly what I mean either. What I mean is that in all the Psalms, Christ is speaking of his work, what he endured while he was on earth, what he did. Psalm 40, quoted in the epistle to the Hebrews, stands at the heart of it all. Sacrifices and offerings, thou hast no delight. I have said, I come to do thy will, O God. In the volume of the book it is written of me. That is in the volume of the Old Testament scriptures in general, but the volume of the book of the Psalms, it's all there, written of me, so that the Psalms are a demonstration of what Christ did. And Christ saying in the words of Psalm 40, I come to do thy will, O God, in the volume of the book. It is written of me. How else? Oh man, I could talk for a half an hour about that. How else is it possible, for example, for the gospel according to Matthew to say time and time and time again, this Christ did in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled? Why is it that the innocents in Bethlehem, the so-called innocents in Bethlehem were killed shortly after Christ's birth. Because Jeremiah had said, in Ramah was heard a voice of lamentation and much weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. That's Bethlehem that forsook Christ. Why did he go to Egypt? Because Hosea had said long ago, out of Egypt have I called my son, why did he go to Galilee to preach the gospel? Because Isaiah had said, Galilee of the Gentiles, unto them hath a light shine. Every other page almost. Matthew is saying, don't you see? Christ was speaking in the old dispensation and now he comes to fulfill it. That's the Psalms. This is a description of Christ. When you read the Psalms, you must understand that first of all. Then comes the second part of that, and this is what I really want to drive home to you tonight. If you forget everything else I say, please remember this. Christ speaks of his own work in the Psalms, in all aspects of it, by the way, I would say that's even true of Psalms 51. I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Christ is saying that. Why? Because of the sins of all those who were given him of the Father were imputed to him and he bore those sins from the moment of his conception on. He was conceived, not in his own sin, but in the sin that was imputed to him, your sin and my sin. But be that as it may, it is evident too from the Psalms, and no one can possibly deny that, 
that Christ is speaking in the Psalms in such a way that the Psalms are descriptions of the psalmists themselves in their own life and experiences in life and of the church which sings the psalms. I don't, I hope I can emphasize that. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is that anointed? David. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I have sworn the decree. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. David. David. Set his king on Mount Zion. He was writing of himself. You say yes, but you just said that, that Paul quotes that as fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. Indeed he does. But David too, you see. And so it is with the whole book of Psalms. There are many headings to the Psalms. They're not inspired. But at the same time, they're very, very old, those headings to the Psalms. And on occasion, they will give you the circumstances under which the Psalm was written. Psalm 7, Shigion of David, which he sang unto the Lord concerning the words of Cush the Benjamite, that's Doag, who killed the priests of God at the command of Saul. And so you could go on, those headings. Maybe they're right, many of them likely are, because they're so old. They go back before the birth of Christ. But they are proof of the fact that the psalmists were singing of their own experiences as well. This is what happened to me, David says, in Psalm 60, for example. I think that has a heading too, does it not? To the chief musician upon Shushanadoth, Mechtam of David, to teach. That's what Mechtam means, psalm of instruction. When he strove with Aram Nahiram and Aram Zobah, when Joab returned and smote of Edom in the valley of salt, 12,000. O Lord, thou hast cast us off, and so on and so forth. So David singing of his own experiences. Heman was doing the same. The church does the same. Now the question is, and maybe I can go into this a little bit more next week from a little different point of view, but the question is, how can the Psalms be both messianic and at the same time be psalms that arise out of the experiences of the people of God. How is that possible? And I think the answer to that question will unlock to us the great riches of the psalms. I have no hesitation in calling the psalms the spiritual biography of every believer. It's all there. 
Not a biography that someone would write simply describing a person's life, when he was born and where he lived and where he went to school and what kind of a man he was and so on and so forth. But a spiritual biography, a biography of every Christian from the viewpoint of his experiences in his pilgrimage as a Christian. You'll find it all there. Nothing has ever happened from a spiritual point of view to you and to me, which is not there in the Psalms. It's all there. How can they be prophetic of Christ and still be my spiritual biography? That's the question. The answer to that question is, And that's the great beauty of the Psalms. Christ's biography, Christ's autobiography, because it is that, is our biography because he is in us and lives in us. I may put it a little differently. And this is something that we have to explore more in detail next week, the Lord willing. There isn't anything that happens to the child of God from a spiritual point of view in this world that has not happened to Christ. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Rang from the cross in all of the bitterness of Christ's suffering. But Christ makes that same song his own in your heart and in my heart so that there are times in my life when I cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But I can sing it only because Christ first sang it. That's the only way. And so it is with every psalm. Every psalm there is. And that's why the spiritual biography of the child of God is defined and expressed in the Psalms, which is really Christ's autobiography, is because of our union with Christ. And this is even true of the church, not of the individual, not of me only, always, but of the church. That's why we sing the Psalms in church, because the Psalms express my biography as a believer who belongs to Christ and as a member of the church. And then the Psalms can speak of the despair of the church when God in his anger all but destroys it. Read Psalm 80. A vine brought out of Egypt and planted in the land of Canaan that flourished. Why hast thou cut down thy vine? cries out the psalmist. But that was true of Christ first, was it not? Was not he the one that flourished but was cut down out of the land of the living? That's an expression out of Isaiah 53. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Psalm 89, 
that gloriously beautiful psalm that describes in such marvelous detail God's sovereign, unconditional covenant that, would, that he established with David and his seed forever, that he would set a son to sit upon his throne, ends in words of unspeakable despair, which the church sings when the church is afflicted, when apostasy lays the church waste, when troubles abound in the city of God. The Psalms. So when you see your own biography, and by the way, when you develop the themes of the Psalms as they express the spiritual biography of the people of God, they always follow the order of the Heidelberg Catechism. Sin and misery, deliverance in Christ, gratitude for what God has done. Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And so it is over and over again. The Catechism, that remarkable document that God gave us, traces the spiritual biography of the people of God as outlined in the Psalms under those three headings that characterize the life of the child of God in the midst of the world. Read the Psalms that way. When you read a Psalm, ask yourself the question, how does this apply to Christ? And when you have answered that question, then the next question is, and now because it applies to Christ, how does it apply to me as Christ in all his sufferings and in the victory of his resurrection, lives within my heart. That's the Psalms. And that brings me to the second theme that needs to be developed in the Psalms. In a way, this is related to what I have just said, but in a way, it goes a little bit beyond that in some respects. The Psalms speak again and again and again of the enemies of the psalmist. Sometimes those enemies were in the nation itself. There are at least a half a dozen psalms that speak of the fact of the part of David's life where he was fleeing from Saul. And some of them speak of the treachery of Absalom and of Ahithophel, his own familiar friend, with whom he ate bread, with whom he went arm in arm to the house of God, who treacherously turned against him and betrayed him. And again, in all of these things, there are, of course, descriptions, vivid descriptions of the suffering of Christ. But my question, my point is this. Why is there so much emphasis in the Psalms on the enemies of David who rose up against him, Ammon and Moab and Philistia 
and Egypt. Why all that emphasis? Enemies within, enemies without, surrounded by enemies. And in a very striking way, and you can look it up yourself, in Psalm 17, verse 13, and Psalm 35, verse 7, David speaks of these enemies not as threats to the welfare of the kingdom, necessarily, although they are that too, but as enemies, he says, of his soul. Have you ever been struck by that? Speaking of Moab, Moab constitutes an enemy of my soul. Why is that? That's because of this. That the enemies against which the nation of Israel and David and the other kings of, Israel, of Judah fought were pictures of the enemies of the Christians in every age who are forever a threat to our souls. As you know, that unholy, devilish, satanic triumvirate is composed of the world, Satan, and our own sinful flesh. They are our enemies. Now, I wish I had a little more time, but... You understand that you cannot appreciate this unless you have some awareness, unless you have a great deal of awareness of the tremendous power of sin. Not only sin out there, committed in Hollywood, in New York, in New Delhi, Sin right here. There's the enemy. Christ struggled. These Psalms are his autobiography. He bore the burden of our sins. And not only did he bear the burden of our sins that were imputed to him, but he was tempted in all points as we are tempted, except for our sins, is the author to the Hebrews. In an amazing passage. Sin is our enemy. Sin is our greatest enemy. Sin is the threat to our well-being than which there is none greater. Sin, and this is the point that needs to be driven home. Sin is the worst enemy we have and causes us the worst suffering the most intense suffering. Now I know you have to reckon with the reality of sin to appreciate that because many people blithely go prancing down the pathway of life oblivious to the horrors of sin, unaware of the terrible power of sin and indifferent to it if they ever do stop to think about it. But for the Christian, as for Christ, Sin is the cause of suffering, not because we suffer the consequences of sin, but the daily struggle with sin, the battle against sin, overcome almost by temptation, 
where David can sing in Psalm 40 that the billows of the sea swallowed him up, referring to the intensity and agony of the struggle that he has with sin. That's finally, when everything else is said and done, is it not? That's what suffering is all about. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. You understand that? I'm surrounded by temptations. The temptations are great and powerful. And I almost slip and sometimes do. I remember a time, and this happens from time to time in a pastor's life, that he sits alongside of one of his parishioners doing battle with sin. That has happened. I remember one time in particular. We sat there for a long time as one of the parishioners whom I knew well struggled until the sweat streamed down his face with the agony of temptation. And it was so intense that when it was over, it was as if I had wrestled with Satan himself. I felt dirty all over and wanted nothing so much as to go home and take a shower because of the agony of the struggle with temptation. And yet each one has that himself in his own life that awful struggle with temptation. And especially when that struggle takes place right here, it brings up an interesting question, you know, in, so far, in how far does the devil have a role in this? And I think he has a greater role in this, even in the battles that are waged on my own sinful flesh, on the battlefield of my flesh than we often give him credit for. We are reminded in scripture again and again, resist the devil. It's a struggle. It's a struggle. It's a wearisome struggle. When Paul in Ephesians 6 describes the armor of the Christian warrior, I sometimes think that that figure is complete only when you have a picture of this lonely believer standing by himself, fighting against the onslaughts of Satan, who sometimes in the midst of the battle becomes so desperately weary that he can hardly go on. His helmet is knocked awry, and his sword in his hand is broken, and his shield is full of the arrows of the wicked one who attempt to destroy him. And the weariness that comes over him is almost more than he can bear. How comforting it is then that Paul says, and having done all to stand, there he is with the enemy defeated, with his helmet awry, wounded, wounded, weak, weary of the battle, but standing, standing. Isn't that the battle which in the final analysis makes 
the pilgrimage of this life so bitter in its suffering, God tells us a broken and a contrite spirit thou wilt not despise. And I have to fall on my face at the end of the day and say, I come to thee, Lord, with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But it's no fun. It's not a game. It's not pleasant to writhe in the dust over the agony of your sin, to confess again your sins to God Most High. Lord, I failed, and if it were not for thy grace, I would have been overcome in the battle and destroyed by the enemy more powerful than I am. You want to know what suffering is about? Forget all the rest. This is suffering at its worst for the child of God. Read the Psalms. And every time you come across David and speaking of his enemies, think to yourself, yes, those enemies of Moab and Ammon and Absalom are the enemies that are in my own sinful flesh. As David fought with them, so must I. And the battle is severe. And that brings me to the final point, and that is this that as far as I know, there is only one psalm in the whole of the Hebrew Psalter that does not end in a tone of victory. Not just one, so far as I know. The struggles which the psalmist describe are bitter in fears. And the sorrows and anguish that are part of the autobiography of a Christian are almost beyond imagining. But every psalm ends with victory. Everyone, except, so far as I know, one. And that's because, and I repeat what I have said, the autobiography of Christ is the biography of every child of God because we are united to him. And Christ wills that everything he endured, we experience in our own lives, everything. But there is that song, you know, I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way than this. That was true of Christ. Through the sufferings and anguish of the cross, bearing our sins and our guilt, enduring the awful abandonment of his heavenly Father. He went on, he went on, mighty and powerful, rising from the dead. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, nor suffer thy Holy One to seek corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. And at the glory of heaven, at God's right hand, he was crowned with great honor, and majesty and power. And we who belong to him and whose biography, spiritual biography is really his, go on to the victory that Christ himself gained for his people. Always the way of the cross leads home. Suffering opens up heaven for the people of God because their suffering is Christ's. And their glory is also his and ours for his sake. Read the Psalms that way. 
They're marvelous beyond compare. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.